Hey everybody, welcome to episode 5 of the PFFA pod. My name is Kyle McLowry, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Tremaine Clayton, the CHAT program coordinator. It's the Community Health Assessment Team, CHAT program. I thought this would be an opportunity to communicate directly with the members of Local 43 about the program and about the work that Tremaine does. Uh, I can speak for myself and a couple of the members who I've spoken to about the program that don't really know uh, a lot about what the program entails. I think that most of us know that the original intent was to identify some of the high utilizers of the 911 system and try and get them services so they would become less high utilizers of the system. Um, but there's a lot that goes into the, to the job and Trey's doing great work and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thanks. All right, good morning. Welcome. I'm here with Tremaine Clayton uh, talking about the, the chat program. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Okay, good. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, as I mentioned in the intro, we kind of want to get a general idea of what the chat position is because I feel like a lot of the the members may not really have a close understanding of what your job is. So, in that sort of 10,000-foot view, how do you describe or explain the position? I'm sure there's some part which is the job description itself and some is the actual reality of the job, but sort of overview, general idea, what is what is the purview of the chat coordinator? Yeah, so the chat program is uh, kind of broken down into three parts. Uh, we have the high utilizer group, which is the frequent caller mm-hmm. for 911. Um, the hug group. The hug group, yeah. yeah. Then there's homeless outreach, which is definitely still works um, with the high utilizers, but uh-huh. there's also uh, groups that have been working with to make sure that people are getting assessed uh, for their vulnerability scores, oh. um, which helps get them on a housing list. Is that that's a thing, a vulnerability score? There, there's a vulnerability assessment, uh-huh. and it takes into account the length of homelessness uh-huh. um, and other factors that kind of rates a person's vulnerability okay. to get them onto a list for housing. Okay. And uh, So I'm just, I'm just curious about this. Yeah. Would a higher score get you closer to housing or a lower score get you closer to housing? My understanding, it's the higher the score okay. will get you there. But then again, I mean, this it, it's working with a very transient population. So where you're on the list also um, requires lining you up or finding you when right. your number comes up, too. <laughs> right. Okay, cool. So that's so, the second. What is the, yeah. is the third? Well, the third piece is more of an education prevention aspect. So uh-huh. where the fire bureau historically has done like fire extinguishers and smoke alarms, yeah. this is more of that... Uh, health and social determinants, um, trying to put the word out there. And really this focus is trying to be more in the uh, schools, trying to get that early education, nutrition, um, being healthy. Interesting. Sort of like that PEO position a little bit, the public information, no, public... Education officer, officer, excuse me. Yes, and I and I think I'm pulling from that. A little bit. been uh-huh. in that office a couple, I guess that was five years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and really, I do feel a crossover in that area where when I am speaking. And, and the education piece also gets put in um, with the homeless outreach, you know, like uh, passing out burn, bl- burn ban flyers. Right. Um, trying to right. explain, you know, it's like they're doing what they have to do to survive, but if we can make it a little more safe, um, 
then maybe the calls for those random, hey, there's a campfire over there. Right, smoke in the area. Yeah, yeah, just trying to see, like, what are people calling about and if we can educate uh-huh. the campers to right. be safe, right. you know, trying to re- reduce it that way. Okay, and so this, and this is sort of news to me a little bit. So there's a component that's actually in this school system a little bit. Are you actually traveling this, to schools for education or is this just in the homeless population you're educating? No, the the... Education piece is kind of full gamut. Um, schools, homeless, high utilizers, huh. uh, because even with the high utilizer group, you know, if someone's falling, we'll do a fall assessment yeah. and educate the client on what they can do to better themselves. So each piece kind of has an education component to it. Right. Um, the reason why we definitely pull education out is for the things like the stop the bleed training um that kind of falls under my belt Uh and that's a program i'm working a pilot with portland public schools uh with laurent picard's help help set that up okay so it sounds like there's i remember the original part of this uh program was having to do with the high utilizers and now maybe it's transitioned a little bit more so or at least evenly between high utilizers and the homelessness and they're, they're they overlap but i was originally thinking high high utilizers is just what i see which is more of some of the, I work at Station 28, so um, Hollywood East, I get a lot of callers from there, and that sort of person who has a home, but they're still high utilizers. Yeah. So there's obviously overlap but between the two. And that, uh, so is that two separate things, I guess? I guess that's sort of my, my point with that. I see, yeah. I think, I think where it kind of went was that my work with the high utilizers, um, really a lot of that work is with Tri-County 911. Okay. And that was the group that piloted the project with us initially um, when Lisa Reslock was in the position. Right. And during the pilot program, that the Tri-County 911 social workers were actually partnered with Lisa mm-hmm. going I out. I remember that, And yeah. so now that that piece of it, that component is not written into my um, job, uh, I definitely have a working relationship with Tri-County 911. Mm-hmm. But I've been finding that... With the high utilizers specifically, it's more of a liaison job okay. between the crews and Tri County 911. Right. There are certain cases where I could definitely work by myself, mm-hmm. but oftentimes it's a matter of finding the right social worker. Right. And right. then there's there's not a lot unless there's a lot of field work to do. Right. Um, which most times, if there's no phone, I'm I'm literally running messages right. or taking people to uh, to their doctor's appointments. Right. I'm finding that that work is more administrative, mm-hmm. whereas with the high, uh, excuse me, with the homeless um, population, there really was no way of tracking. And so when I find myself going into the field with the homeless, I feel like it's more hands-on assessment, right. trying to determine who they go to and really being more of an advocate for them. So often they get into the system and just kicked right back out without really any evaluation. So to meet someone at the hospital, people, first of all, want to know why I'm there and I tell them I'm there to advocate. And now you see things starting to happen and not every day, but most often when, when I show up with a homeless client, I feel like there's more they have more of a voice. Right. It's super interesting to me because you, I would imagine that advocacy would come from a social worker in the hospital. They're probably overwhelmed and overworked and having someone come from the outside sort of directed in through the emergency, the ops side 
is something they're they're not ready for. They're, well, I can imagine them saying, "What are you doing here?" Mm-hmm. But could be super. I mean, very effective, potentially. Yeah. Have you seen some good success meeting with that model meeting somebody at the hospital? Well, there was one client, my my first and only homeless client that's been housed, uh-huh. um, was definitely with a partnership with Tri County Nine One One. But really, it was being in the field and sticking to this person, so we couldn't lose them. Um, in order to get them through the process. Mm-hmm. And again, it, you, you would think it's a no-brainer. We're trying to get this person services. They would be there. Yeah. But there's so many aspects of trauma in this person's life. They're just in survival mode. Constantly. So even with me there, yeah, they're still trying to survive. Right. And so trying to gain that trust to right. get them through the system. Right. Is, is really the important I piece. think that idea of a liaison between the crews and Tri-Kai 911 is a pretty critical element of that communication loop. Because yep. I don't, I think about, you know, working out in the line, don't really think about uh, Tri-Kai 911 at all, really. Right. And that's really the key element of services for a lot of these, these this population, you know. That's that's a big one, and then the fact that uh, Tri County nine one one utilizes emergency department and AMR data, so they don't really even use our data. So huh. we can have that high utilizer that's a a, a nine In, call invisible you know, invisible to them invisible to them. So we've gone on a lift assist fifteen times, but AMR wasn't this batch, so right. Tri County's not going to see it. So right. part of my job is getting that information of who our crews are running on to get to them. We're only a few minutes into this, and I feel like there should be like eight of you on the line out there. Um, all right, so let me uh, drill down a tiny bit. So one of the guys I talked to earlier in the week was we're talking about this podcast. Just off the cuff, I was like, so what does a day look like? So I know in the fire service, there's no typical day, but what would like a typical nine-to-five day look like for you? Yeah, well, I have, I guess this is a good time to talk about my schedule. I... Uh, work the 40-hour work week um sorry no worries i work the 40-hour work week uh monday wednesday fridays are our typical eight hour days and uh then i do um starting actually last week trying to modify my schedule a little bit i'll go o dark 30 about 5 36 o'clock yeah um with coffee to meet up with the homeless and just kind of do some coffee outreach. Um, They all come up and just kind of just talking Mm -hmm. and eventually they get curious, ask me questions. I tell them why I'm there. And um, in doing that, it seems like I get at least one or two people that have a need either, either Mm -hmm. I found them, uh, they give me their name and it's like, yep, you're on my high utilizer. Uh, I recognize you. Or uh, this other one, you know, she, she seemed kind of just panicked. And so it's just, Hey, what's going on? She was uh, 14 weeks pregnant. She had gone to the hospital because uh, she got sick using prenatal medicine. Turns out she has an allergy to the prenatals. But they gave her a pass for one of the shelters downtown, and she was just terrified. She was trying to get back to the safety of her car in North Portland. And um, once I made that connection, it was easy to call over to Cascadia. Cascadia had sent their outreach team to do that vulnerability assessment. Yeah. And it took a day and a half to find her. Uh-huh. But uh, once we found her again, um, they were able to provide those resources. So 
Yeah, so so I, I really haven't had a typical day this last couple of weeks as I've been trying to modify. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, uh, my, my admin days are usually kind of going through. So now when you ch click on the uh, frequent caller box, that generates okay. an automatic email to the chat inbox. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then I'll run reports to compare um, to actually get a name with an right. RP number. Right. And then, you know, kind of run it through the TC911 lists and so kind of go from there. So you kind of balance between... Uh, sitting at the desk, dat getting data, scheduling stuff, and then getting out in the field, sort of try and get a certain number of days each week. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like it's either or. Just I'm either in the field all day or I'm in the office all day. Just yeah. there, there's enough work to be done that right. I've never finished. And you're over at the EMS office? Yep. Got yep. it. Um, all right. So I got another question here. Um, there is an article in the Cogglevation couple months back um it featured you in the, the chat position and there was a, a quote that intrigued me um it was quote trauma-informed care is something i'd like the whole bureau to be aware of um can you just maybe ex explain a little bit what trauma-informed care is or what this is a platform where you can speak to not the whole bureau but hopefully if things go well you get to maybe 150 or so here uh individuals yeah 300 years you know yeah. So yeah, what can you talk about that? Well, yeah, trauma informed care is it's a it's an organizational structure and like for treatment, um, and, and where basically every every aspect um, is recognizing or responding to that client, recognizing um, all trauma that this person might have had. Okay. Right. And I'm I'm horrible with names, but I remember a Tualatin Valley firefighter yeah. uh, years ago talking about. When someone calls 911, it's their emergency. Mm -hmm. It's not our emergency. Mm -hmm. And and I really found like a lot of the trauma-informed care practices kind of reminds me of that. Mm -hmm. Like when I'm going, it's it's the person's emergency or trauma and just recognizing whatever the reason they called, they need help yeah. of some form that yeah. they, can, they can't process themselves. So going into that, as an organization, recognizing that we're responding to people's crisis, no yeah. matter how big or small, I feel helps with that compassion fatigue that a lot of us mm -hmm. deal with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I just, when, when I was thinking that or said that, that that's really where it was coming from was the fact that a lot of the classes and training that I've had around that piece really takes the why am I pissed off responding aspect and really putting it on, on the part that this person needs our help uh -huh. or whatever. You right. Know? Right. So I want to jump around a little bit. I'm going to, I'll come back yeah. to that as well, but you, you, you sort of hit something that I wanted to talk about anyways, which is the compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. And you know, we spoke a tiny bit before we started recording and, and it's definitely a, a, it's a big deal with our firefighters, big deal with all firefighters nationally. Um, and you mentioned something that I thought was really important that the resiliency for us, for the right. firefighters, for our members. So um, I think there are a lot of different ways uh, that can look, a lot of different practices perhaps people use. I know um, what I've been hearing, some people talk about the mindfulness a lot, whether it's meditation or whatever that means to, to the individual. But that capacity fatigue is definitely something that I felt. I imagine it, most of people have felt. And it sounds like you're talking about, it's almost like a reframe. Yeah. So this... Uh, understanding that the crisis is 
uh, trigger for the patient as from a trauma in their past. Right. And it is their emergency, and we're there to help as we can. I guess you understand, and we all understand that when it's the fifth time in four days, in a day, or whatever it is, it gets tiring nonetheless. It's right. hard to always find that reframe, I guess. Right, and I think that's where the trauma-informed care model kind of takes it and, and and does put it into that different context of, yes, it's the fifth time, but if I bring compassion this mm-hmm. time, this mm-hmm. fifth time, mm-hmm. I'm bringing... I'm not bringing more trauma, right? So if this person's calling for crisis and I get there and I'm just like, what's your problem? And I, and I have yeah. no compassion. Yeah. I'm, I'm topping my whatever it is. Issues. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's just like, yeah, if I had a flat tire and I come to work with my bad attitude and then I take that bad attitude and put it on this person, they're going to yeah. call seven more times because they didn't get their needs met and they have more trauma based off of my bad attitude. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Cool. Well, that's, it's a good thing to try and carry with us out into the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like you've definitely had some extended training in some of the more mental health issues. Um, any particular trainings uh, or is there more you'd like to do or things that you've been doing recently? Any things you've been reading lately? Just sort of mental health related type stuff or what? what anything come to mind? Well, I've, I initially... I, got into this position and I was super gung ho about getting yeah. back into school and uh. <laughs> just, you know, furthering my education, but just realizing the hours that it takes. I mean, it's a master's level to be a social worker. And, and then even after you get the degree, you're still however many thousands of hours before you're practicing. Right. And that just isn't realistic for the work that needs to be done now. Right on. Yeah. So a lot of it has been just online, a lot of it mental and behavioral health uh-huh. um, classes, a lot of resiliency and mindfulness classes for yeah. myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, really to help me process what I'm experiencing. Because that, that's the one unique thing about this job is, you know, normally we have the two to five minutes with them, depending on the call. Right. Or you get waved off by AMR. Right. I'm going to these people that we know have these chronic issues and I'm spending at a minimum 15, 20 minutes with them. Yeah. And then you start to get to know them. I have this guy in North Portland. He yeah. ends up, he's like, thank you for being my friend. It's like, oh, huh. you hit me with the F-bomb again. <laughs> <laughs> and and because, I mean, you're seeing these <sighs> lifestyles and it's just like you know where they're going and it's just like how do you pour that self how do you pour yourself into this work yeah knowing the return's not going to be great yeah and so really a lot of the stuff has been mindfulness and resiliency practices for myself um to try to help with those um with those clients Mm-hmm. motivational interviewing is the next class I'm trying to get into. Mm-hmm. And really it is trying to empower the clients to mm-hmm. take charge for their own health. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really the big piece. Um, yeah. So I want to turn our focus here a little bit to the, and we may touched on it a little bit already, but the interface between the, the line firefighters, officers, and your position. I know that there are times when you're going to get referrals from the crews um, and I guess those referrals go to you, maybe end up Tri-County. But so is that is that model working? Or is it, how would you like people to communicate with you from the line? Or what would be preferred method for getting information on high utilizers or homeless or that sort of thing? Yeah, I would say that that again is another work in progress. Oftentimes an email or a phone call direct about a client 
mm-hmm. um, will definitely put them on my radar quicker. Okay. The FIS system is frustrating. Uh-huh. Um, the biggest frustration is uh, John and Jane Doe. Um, oh, they yeah. call a lot. Yeah. It's a huge family. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. <laughs> um, so yeah, if, if, if there is someone that you are concerned about yeah. or high utilizer, it's really important name and date of birth at a minimum name and date of birth and the contact info. Yeah. We're working on, I've been working with the data team and, uh, Steve Parks and, and the gang about trying to get that information all consolidated in one spot. Right, right. Uh, one loophole we found is if you're writing a patient chart, yeah. um, oftentimes the frequent caller box is skipped, right? Because you're writing the name in a different spot and you're just kind of clicking through. Mm. And so do we mm-hmm. put it in two spots, one spot? A lot of that stuff is being discussed. And then my... So direct sidebar to the medics out there. <laughs> right. <laughs> when you if you have one, if you have a frequent flyer, yeah. check the box. Check the box and, and name and date of birth. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then I'm just, I'm concerned that's, because we might be getting that, a new... That's for the officers. <laughs> <laughs> We, uh, we might be getting this new, or not might be, we're getting the new charting system um, that AMR right, uses. So right. hopefully there'll be components in there that will make it easier. I know there's been uh, other manufacturers that have different charting systems that have community right. health as a thing that would all inter- interface. But right. I don't know. It's work in progress. Okay. We got high-speed internet now, so yes, we'll get there. We'll get there. It's, these things happen slowly. It's like a glacier. Um, so basically, it's either email, call, direct, or it's going to have to wait for the FIS system to flag it. Yeah. I mean, when, when you click the box, there's an automatic email, but it's generic. It tells me RP address and unit responder. Yeah. Um, and so then I will try to cross-reference that with the contact list. Okay. okay. So um, it's working. I saw at the end of that Coggle article... And it reminded me, I just had a conversation with another one of uh, my social worker friends about this this program. I believe it's the Portland Street Medicine program. Yeah. And this was a little bit ago. Do you know how that's going? So t- as I understand it, it's a, it's a program that's sending doctors, social workers, nurses out, out literally out to the homeless camps yep. providing care. Yep. Is that something you've been involved with a little bit or somewhat? Yeah, um, I've I've been volunteering with a group out of Eugene, yeah. and I kind of got connected with Portland Street Medicine through a nurse that I volunteer with uh-huh. with that other group. Uh, but yeah, Portland Street Medicine. Um, my understanding was Bill Toper is a retired ED doc from uh-huh. Washington, and he's right. kind of got it going. Uh, Dan Bissell, Lacey, is uh, the nurse. And uh, Drew from OHSU is a social worker. I think that's the one who I've heard about. Yeah, yeah, yeah Drew. Drew, yeah. Um, great group of people, and yeah, they're they're trying to basically get primary care out into the field. Just and again, it's kind of that prevention piece. You yeah, know, if yeah. they can take care of a small abscess before it turns into a gross infection, sure. um, they're doing that. And and oftentimes. The homeless population, they won't go to the hospital until it is dire Dire, um, because they don't want to lose their spot, their stuff, or whatever. So, yeah, they usually go out on Fridays. Um, Initially, they were working under Cascadia, but my understanding is they have their own umbrella now in terms of uh, their freedom to work. Okay, cool. That sounds like pretty intense work. 
Yeah. So I just saw it mentioned. So that's not something that you're necessarily a, a part of. It's just one of the one of the other little pieces of the puzzle that are helping this particular population, I guess. Yeah, I feel. I think early and early on when we were discussing it, I feel like that was their model. Is a model that I pictured the chat program being, and I think it really was with the work with Lacey. Um, we we volunteer with Whitebird, and they run a, a medic social worker uh-huh. model and out kind of an outreach model. And so they have a program called Kahoot. And I, I think we had kind of discussed that Kahoot's model with the right. chat program. Right. Um, but again, there's a lot of people make way more than I do that discuss <laughs> those programs. Higher pay grade. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's, that's really how we got involved because we do have the same outreach mission uh-huh. involved. And I feel like, the more Portland Street Medicine does in the field, the less we're going to see in terms of um, our call volume in the field, theoretically. At least for those those type of calls. Those types of calls. Yeah. Um, I guess while I'm on it now, um, I would I would say one thing that I'm hoping to do that uh, to be a part of is um, when the sweeps are happening. Yeah. I've gone out to a couple of sweeps and trying to get the service providers coordinated to provide care um, at the sweeps or there's a San Francisco model that we're looking at where instead of right now they'll post that a sweep's going to happen and it usually happens within 24 to 48 hours. The model that we're looking at would inform the person, the camp that um, it will be posted but like maybe three weeks out Mm -hmm. and then providing those service providers or having those service providers out there in the field um, to do the assessments, Mm -hmm. to have a quick medical screening, to have all of those social determinant factors addressed, needle exchange, harm reduction, those, those sorts of pieces so that in three weeks when the sweep happens, theoretically there'll be fewer people to sweep and, um, because they would be engaged in services. And then when the sweep occurs, at least in San Francisco, they, they have put enough effort and energy that those um, camps don't reestablish themselves. Hmm. So, so it really is a camp reduction, huh. but it's not just sweep and forget about them. It's provide services to the fullest extent, then sweep what's, what's left, I guess. I it's, don't know it, if I'm it, saying it right, but. That makes sense in a way. I just had, you know, when I think of the sweeps, you hear about them on the news. The only element that I hear about is the police walking through. Mm-hmm. I actually had not really coupled that idea with th- their services were part of the sweep, whether prior, right before, right after, or what element. But of course, that makes sense that if they're going to, they're, they're we'll moving through a camp, there's going to hopefully be in conjunction with some social services. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the most vulnerable time yeah. um, in my experience. When I do my day-to-day outreach, all is well because they're living the way they normally live. Right. But during that sweep, their world is literally being turned upside, turned down. upside down and they're stressed and looking for help. Interesting. Awesome. Well, I think it's probably a fairly good time to wrap it up. Um, we've had a, a longer conversation than I expected, but it's been awesome. Yeah. Is there anything uh, just in general you want to add or anything in particular just to send out to the folks out there? Um you're doing awesome work. We all thank you. I thank you. Thank you. This, the citizens, I think. The city thanks you. Um, 
no, it's, it's a great opportunity. Um, yeah, to be a part of something new. I mean, the fire department's steeped in tradition, yeah. uh, to break out and do something brand new. Um, it's, it's important and it's, and I'm proud to be in the position to have the opportunity to make that change. And, and I hope I leave a positive mark on it. Yeah. The next person, and, you know, hopefully you won't ever have to go back to city council for funding for the position again. No. Uh, and I think that's great. I, I, I was super stoked about it. Yeah. I honestly wasn't expecting it at least this go around. I thought yeah. there was going to be one more push, but, um, it is important work. And I, I, I thank Lisa for laying mm-hmm. it down there. Um, good job, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, and the support, the crews have been real kind and, mm-hmm. and helpful and supportive. I got a great support staff. Um, Gillespie is my go-to guy mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and Burns has been fair and honest and let me know what's the what, you know, and giving me the, the reins to make this program successful. Right so right it's on. awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right.